Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen On. Over the last 200 years, nothing has divided us more than our free market economic system. Is it the source of every social injustice, from exploitation to alienation to inequality? Or is it essential to our individual freedom and democracy? This debate is as relevant today in 2020 as it was in 1920 or 1820. So what's up with our contemporary free market economic system? How do we fix capitalism? It's March 2nd. It's the morning of March 2nd. And, and the world is dominated by two things at the moment. The first, of course, is the coronavirus. The seconds are the fluctuations in the world stock markets uh, caused by the coronavirus. Uh, today, I'm speaking with a woman who might describe herself as an anti-futurist. Uh, she's the distinguished business uh, woman, entrepreneur, uh, Anglo-American uh, success story, Margaret Heffernan. She has a new book out called Uncharted, How to Map the future together. Uh, Margaret, it's it's March 2nd now. Can you tell me uh, how many people will have died of the coronavirus by, say, March 10th? I definitely can't. There are mathematical models of epidemics, but the difficult thing about epidemics is that there's no profile of one, which is to say they're all different. They're different um, pathogens, they have different rates of spread according to different geographies. And even in the different geographies, it's dependent on the social and personal infrastructure of healthcare. So it's different with every pathogen in every country, in every healthcare system. So it's a beautiful example, if you like, of, of our difficulty of doing accurate forecasts because Every single one, while it shares characteristics with other epidemics, everything, everyone is a unique event. What about stock market? Maybe you can be a bit more helpful there because the <laughs> subtitle of your book is How to Map the Future Together. So, Margaret, we're, we're depending on you to, to map. <laughs> if you can't map the, um, the future of the coronavirus, at least you could the map, the, the future of the stock market, so we won't all continue to lose all our money. But of course, exactly as you've said, since the market can't know about epidemics, there will always be an element of unpredictability about how the market behaves. And it's quite interesting, you know, this sense, people are always arguing that, um, wow, the rate of change has increased. And I'm not at all convinced that that's true. Um, or even, frankly, that it matters. I think what's more likely to explain our sense of unsettlement is that actually we're less able to forecast now than probably at any time in the last 100 years. So we got quite accustomed to the idea that we could forecast annual rates of return. We could forecast, um, you know, we can forecast weather better than ever. Um, but I think what we overlooked was that however we get better at some of those things, there is under not underlying the complex system that is life, 
just an ineradicable uncertainty. And no amount of technology or magic or fame or punditry can get us over that. And so I think the prospect of mapping the future starts with recognizing it doesn't exist. It isn't out there. The only way you map it is by going out and discovering it and creating it for yourself. And this, of course, requires a high degree of agency, and some people would call it courage. Um, so they're quite reluctant to accept that there isn't a magician somewhere who has the answer. One of the things I found when I was writing the book is that many people talk about the future as though it's behind a locked door, that if you just had the key, um, then you could just open it up and peek in, and then you'd know, and then you'd feel well, better or worse, depending on what you saw. And a lot of people, of course, think that pundits have the key, you know, that, that Paul Krugman knows or that, um, you know, that Larry Kudlow knows or any number of pundits who are famous for making pronouncements right. and they're never followed up. And your book is, if anything, I guess, uh, an anti-futurist or certainly an anti Larry Kudlow style yes. polemic against the idea of knowing the future. You say that we are addicted to prediction. So I guess this, this book is designed to, to get us off that addiction, to kick the habit of futurism. Yeah, it is that. And I think, you know, what's really interesting is that when you talk to people like Philip Tedlock, Tedlock who's really studied forecasting, um, he will acknowledge that, yes, we can get better at it, um, but we will never, ever get all uncertainty out of the system. Of course, the problem with people like um, either Krugman or Kudlow, for that matter, is that they have ideologies or theories of how the world works. And what Tetlock's research showed was actually the more famous you are, the less likely your forecasts are to be accurate. So if you want to be very good at understanding kind of where you are and where you might be, you have to kind of leave the ideology outside and approach a very complex gain of information with a lot of um, objectivity and a great preparedness to change your mind. But what's wrong, Margaret, with selling the future? What's wrong with dressing it up and turning it into um, something which is incredibly sexy. I mean, the great thinkers of the past, from Plato to Marx, have always done that. Isn't that just uh, another facet of what it means to be human, to imagine a better future or perhaps a worse future, and to exaggerate it? I, th I think it is absolutely part of being human. And, um, you know, it's, it's part of what storytelling is, is making sense of where we are, imagining what it could become. And I do think there's quite a lot of value in that, as long as you don't pin all your hopes on being right. So it's not, an, it's not a worthless exercise. Well, what I think is a, a dangerous exercise is believing that someone really knows and that, I think, you know, is falling for propaganda, of which, as we know, there is rather a lot around at the moment. 
you've you've spent your life mostly in the business world. Is this book designed to warn business people off futurism, warn them off uh, the science or the the pseudoscience of prediction? Well, it's definitely that. Um, it's also designed to warn them against um, efficiency. <laughs> so I would say, you know, in business generally over the last hundred years and probably longer, really, since the Industrial Revolution, the business world has focused, you know, ruthlessly on efficiency. The more efficient a business, the more profitable. And the thing about efficiency is it does deliver a fantastic rewards with anything that is very predictable. If you're making, you know, the same object over and over and over again, efficiency is pretty much what you want. Um, but if you can't predict what is going to happen, then what efficiency does is it strips away all your margins for errors. There's a really interesting example here in the UK today, which is the UK has 2.3 hospital beds per thousand members of the population. It's about the lowest in Europe. And that's because over the last 10 years, you know, the health system has been made more and more ostensibly efficient. In fact, what it means is that there's no margin for accidents. There's no capacity, spare capacity to cope with the unexpected like an epidemic. There are just in the whole country, 15 beds for patients with respiratory diseases. So if you're operating in a world as I think we are, where there is a large amount of uncertainty, efficiency really won't help you. It's risky and it's dangerous. So you have to start thinking instead about being robust, having more resources in the shape of people, plant, networks, information, and so on more of that than you need, because you know you don't quite know what you will need in the future. Your book's interesting because you, you say two things which uh, are profound, profoundly contradictory, or you observe two things that are profoundly contradictory. On the one hand, you note, as, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, that we're living at a time where it's harder and harder to predict anything from from, from stock markets to uh, to, 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 to global um, global scares like uh, the coronavirus. But on the other hand, we have now these tools, particularly mm. AI, um, which claim to be able to right. quantify the future, to number crunch the future. Right. Is that contradiction particularly troubling or should it be troubling? Well, I think it's troubling um, for two reasons. Um, one is, as you know uh, better than most, a lot of the promises around AI are just marketing nonsense. It's a sort of you know, mind grab, market grab, where all sorts of pretty basic software is being pumped up to look like you know it can do brain surgery while making you a cup of tea. Um, so that always troubles me. And, you know, I worked in the tech industry. I know all about um, vaporware. But, the, you know, so that in a way is traditional, except, you know, I think the realms of exaggeration have become really extraordinary. Um, I think the other thing, too, is that with, with prediction, you have to know what you're looking for. 
And some things like, for example, an epidemic, you know some things about it, but you really don't know what it's going to be next time. And so you may get a really irrational degree of comfort when you see that the definition of epidemics of the past are nowhere to be seen. You might think, well, this is fantastic. I'll stop investing in vaccine research because um, it looks like we're good for a while. So I think there's, you know, I think there are several problems with AI. One is the overselling. One is uh, the difficulty of looking for things which you can't actually define. Um, there's definitely the difficulty that history doesn't repeat itself. So using history as a model is going to be rather dangerous. And of course, you're going to be knee deep in correlation causation problems, you know, night and day. So I, and so I think this is, this is very tricky. And in addition, of course, there are all sorts of issues around privacy and bias that we are beginning to understand, but aren't very close to resolving. I mean, in some ways, I, you know, I went to see the movie, okay, so I went to see the movie last night, Todd Haynes's movie, Deep Water, about how DuPont, you know, just invented all kinds of chemicals and put them out there because they weren't prohibited. So it kind of wasn't against the law, except it kind of killed people. And, um, and I thought, well, that's exactly what we're doing with AI. You know, we're doing this kind of unfettered drugs trial on the populace at large because um, it hasn't been prohibited because you can't prohibit what hasn't been invented yet. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. With BetterHelp, you can connect with professional counselors in a safe and private online environment and get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can even schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. At BetterHelp, their licensed professional counselors specialize in a number of expertises, including depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma. And anything you share is confidential. If you are not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time with no additional cost. BetterHelp has 3,000 US licensed therapists across all 50 states and is available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours via text, chat, on your phone or through video, on your desktop, mobile web, Android and iOS apps. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, professional and affordable. As being a listener of Keen On, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code KEENON. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash keenon. Simply fill out a questionnaire 
to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash keynote. Now, back to the show. Okay, so your your book uncovers the the dangers of this thoughtless futurism, this idea that we can always predict what's going to happen, uh, that it can be quantified. You warn us about AI, you warn us about uh, pundits on television who claim to know where the stock market's going or or where the latest virus is, is going. What is the fix to this? Uh, because you're not just a, 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 an anti-prediction person. This book, Uncharted, actually lays out an alternative way of thinking and planning the future. Right. So I think um, I think the first issue is we need to accustom ourselves to the idea that there is a great deal we won't know in advance. There are some things we'll know. You know, five-day weather forecasts are, by and large, excellent. 30-day forecasts, not so much. Except in England, right? Well, even in England, they're pretty good. (laughs) I mean, unfortunately, that, you know, five days isn't going to give you enough time to move your house when it's about to be flooded. But um, so, so it's important to understand, so what are the things we can predict with reasonable probability, bearing in mind, even professional mathematicians find probability kind of hard to get their heads around. But I think you have to start from the assumption there's a lot we don't know. So what do we do to understand where we are better? And the first thing I talk about is experiments. Um, experiments are a great way in a complex system of kind of feeling out what what's the nature of the system right now? What will it tolerate? What will it not tolerate? And there are kind of two examples uh, that I can talk about. There, there are lots of examples in the book. Um, you know, one example is this brilliant Dutch uh, economist who was also strangely a nurse who looked at the way that home care nursing operated and had, I think, a very brilliant insight, which is um, that the way it was being run at the time was 100% focused on efficiency. So the quality of service you got was a product, it had a barcode, and that meant you you would get a nurse on certain days for certain hours with certain levels of treatment. And and it was very efficient, though the bureaucracy to run this was super expensive and rather ornate. And he saw that that stuff, which was allocating a, a contract to a patient and a nurse to a patient, was not complex. It's complicated, but it's the same every time. Every time you have a patient, you have a contract, you have a nurse, you do the deal, you do the invoice, you're done. But then there was another part of the system, which was complex, namely the patient, because no two patients are ever exactly the same. So one patient with a broken leg might have a lot of family help where another one might not. One might be really positive and outgoing. One might be a kind of isolated, depressive, whatever. And, um, and so what he said was, well, let's use technology for the repetitive stuff because it really will benefit from efficiency. But all this ambiguous stuff, let's just say to the nurses, do what you think is right. Let's trust their human judgment. 
and he got permission to do this as an experiment with 10 nurses treating 40 patients. And what he found was that the patients in this regime got better in half the time and the costs fell by 30% as audited by Ernst Young, Ernst and Young. So when I asked him, you know, what was it about this experiment that surprised you? He kind of laughed and he said, well, I had no idea that this would be the result or that it would be so easy. He said, if you set out to make, to cut costs by 30%, you'd never do it this way. You know, you just never do it this way because you'd start with what you have and you'd shave things off of it. And so experiments are a fantastic way to test a different model, um, but you have to get out there and do it. You know, you can't just, you would never see those outcomes by treating it as a spreadsheet model. So it's a fantastic experiment. The 20th century, of course, the so, uh, so 20th century, of course, was the, hold on, uh, I'm getting some feedback here. Are you? Um, I'm fine. Have you, did you change something, Mark? No. Nope. Hello, hello. No, it's good. And no more feedback. Um, so the 20th century, of course, Margaret, um, was the century of government experiments, mostly catastrophic in futurism, you know, five and 10 year plans, particularly right. in the Soviet Union and in China. Um, but I think I, I'm I think the sort of experiments that I'm working on. Well, but let me finish the question. Well, but let, let me finish. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing you're obviously critical, as, as everybody else, critical of those. What should the role of government be in the 21st century in terms of trying to shape the future? Well, I think primarily the goal of gov the role of government should be to convene the right people. <coughs> Excuse me. To think about where are we and where do we want to go? So I've written quite extensively in the book about the Citizens' Assembly in, that was set up by the Irish government to debate a number of issues, um, climate change, an aging population, term limits, and most notably, um, an amendment regarding abortion. Now, what the government did is it said, first of all, this is such a toxic subject. We know we have to deal with it, but we don't actually want to be anywhere near it. So how can we deal with it and not deal with it? And so what they did is they convened an assembly of a hundred citizens um, chosen to look like the population. And over a period of uh, six months, long weekends in which these people all came together, got very clear, accurate, objective briefings on the subject, asked them for their recommendation. <coughs> now, many people thought that this was just a waste of time. What would these idiots know? Um, it was just face saving. But actually, it engaged the entire population, partly because every single session, every single piece of evidence, every discussion was put online and um, and kind of galvanized the whole nation, all of whom could make submissions if they wished to. 
At the end of the process, um, the, the assembly was asked to make a recommendation to the government uh, for a referendum and to say how they would vote. The government accepted the recommendation. <coughs> the referendum was duly held and the popular vote was uncannily and unpredictably close to the citizens vote. The crucial thing about this is the punctiliousness with which it was done. It was on a random bunch of people thrown together for a chat and the degree to which when the conclusion came out, even people who didn't agree with it accepted that it was legitimate. And I think this is a really crucial issue right now and will become more crucial, which is not just can you do it, but do people accept that the decision has public legitimacy? And I think, you know, there are various forms of deliberative democracy being played with around the world. And I think what's really interesting is I think they point quite a helpful way to get our democracy up to date and a little bit um, more connected. So again, you know, this and what's is interesting about the, uh, <coughs> sorry, what's interesting about the citizen assembly are the role of experts, because it wasn't just direct democracy. It wasn't just deliberative democracy. Experts <laughs> also played a role in educating citizens about these complicated issues, right? That's correct, but they were experts. They were not, um, they weren't, a, they weren't lobbying organizations. Uh, they weren't um, pundits. So they were either, you know, academic experts or people who had worked in the field for a very long time, or they were people with first-hand experience of the topic. So they weren't kind of, it wasn't a great kind of, kind of pile of lobbyists or, you know, screaming in different directions. So it was very scrupulous and it was presided over by a, a high court judge in Ireland. And it was done with massive attention to detail. Now, I would say, you know, that some of the deliberative democracy um, projects have shared that uh, that feature. So that some of the work that James Fishkin has done um, has done exactly the same thing in terms of very, very carefully assembled information. And I think what was really touching in Ireland, you know, is cab drivers, you know, people who worked in bars, lighting technicians, executives, all kinds of people really did their homework. They took very seriously what they were doing. And I think, you know, certainly for me, interviewing them and interviewing the civil servants who ran all of this stuff, you know, it was really miraculous what they did and the seriousness with which everyone took it. And I think really demonstrates that given a serious task, people will rise to it. Your book is um, has some wonderful um, sections on cathedrals. Uh, you argue that the cathedral is the people and that we need to build more of them, maybe not quite literally the cathedrals of the past, but uh, cathedrals of the future may be the way for all of us to, to fix the future. Why are cathedrals and the idea of cathedrals so central to, to Uncharted? Well, I came across um, the phrase cathedral project um, in an article that Stephen Hawking wrote. 
about these great things that he thinks sort of testify to humanity's greatest capability. And, um, and I started thinking about what are the, the cathedral projects of our age. Um, and I thought about three of them. Um, one is CERN, one is the, the ongoing human genome project, and one is the completion of Gaudi's Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. And I went to CERN and that's really where I guess I discovered or it was told by the people who built the Large Hadron Collider, how they had managed to do something which, you know, at the outset, nobody knew if it was possible, nobody knew how to do it, nobody knew who to do it with, or what to do it with, or if when they built it, anything would be discovered. So it's a fantastic example of, you know, overwhelming uncertainty. And what Mario Messi, who took me around and who was the, the kind of lead engineer on the Hadron Collider said was that as much as the project itself and the search for the Higgs boson looked like the thing, actually what made it possible was the uh, quality of the way that people worked on the problem. So the way the problem was kind of tossed from person to person in terms of who knew the most. So instead of it being, you know, it being a hierarchy, really anyone run, running the project today was doing so because they knew more about that particular problem. The other thing that I think is really fascinating about CERN is that they, they collaborate with hundreds, if not thousands of commercial organizations uh, that have very, very high technology and they do that um, because they can't have all that skill in-house, obviously. But the commercial companies do it because it really makes them up their game. Because the heart and soul of CERN is ambition, of not letting the standard down, of really kind of doing the greatest work you can. And everybody that I talked to there, that's what really excited them, was how difficult the work was and how exciting it was to be part of something so ambitious. And I thought that was striking, not least because um, in more conventional organizations, everybody tries to make everything easy. And it struck me that when you make everything easy, you make it kind of meaningless. And that actually the reason that people will so devote their whole lives to CERN, you know, and this, this isn't great pay, this isn't fame and glory is because they have a sense of being part of something great. These cathedral projects then are a kind of uh, an encapsulation of human agency or communal agency. Is that right? Is that why agency is so important also in, in Uncharted and you see it as the, the sort of the, 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 the pinnacle of, of, of our experience as, as humans, whether it's a CERN-style cathedral project, or quite literally building the cathedral in uh, in, in Barcelona. Mm. Yes, and I think it's. I mean, I think it's a testament to the power of human agency to do impossible things. And you know, if you think about efficiency, that's about kind of doing small things bigger, faster, cheaper. Cathedrals are about really testing and stretching and exploring the human capacity for invention and discovery. And um, 
And actually the reason they keep going is because they attract people who are eager for the difficulty of that work. And it was interesting talking to one of the um, former director general of, um, of CERN. You know, it was so it was quite moving, really, because he I had asked himself, you know, at what point will CERN no longer have legitimacy? Will it no longer be worth having? And he decided, well, one way you would know is if you know, really ambitious scientists didn't want to come and work there anymore. And I just thought, what a fantastic test. You know, it wasn't about running out of money or the market share being below 5% or any of this sort of mumbo jumbo. It was about do the problems we address really bring the best out of people? And I just, you know, I would love to hear chief executives ask themselves that question or politicians ask themselves that question and ask, you know, are they really ambitious enough to be meaningful to the people who work in them? Finally, Margaret, um, Give me one cathedral project that currently doesn't exist that you think we really need in the early part of the 21st century. I'm sure you can think of more than one, but just focus on one that might be a way for people to rethink um, imagining the future and working together on, on, mm. on, on fixing some of the, the great issues in the world today. Well, I think one thing that's really important to understand if you take CERN as a model of a modern cathedral project is that it exists, and this is true of the Human Genome Project also, it exists all over the world with multiple institutions and groups and companies and so on. And I would say we need something like that to address climate change. And it's interesting because there's been a discussion at CERN about should they junk particle physics for a while and just turn the whole institution towards climate change. And personally, I'm rather disappointed that they haven't. But I think it's definitely what we need if we're going to build anything that lasts. Today's episode was brought to you by BetterHelp. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening. Keenon isn't just a podcast. It's also a book. Our memorable interviews from last year's show about democracy with best-selling writers like Shoshana Zuboff have been turned into a book. Entitled Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's, Conversations in Defense of the Future, it's available at all good online and offline bookstores. 
So if you want to read this podcast, please buy tomorrow's versus yesterday's. It's the essential analog complement to this digital show.